Our scripture today comes from Acts 2, 1 through 4, and Acts 2, 22 through 36. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, pray with me before we get started. Our Father in heaven, Thank you for speaking to us through the scriptures. Week after week, we need to hear your voice. We need to be summoned out of our work and our labor to rest in and have communion with you, to find our true selves and to long for a home together and to be sent back out into the world so our work would become worship before you. So we invite you to meet with us now Make our hearts soft and sensitive. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Their lives would be forever changed and transformed by the story you are telling about the world. Encounter us through your spirit and lift us up to the risen Jesus who is our hope and peace and guarantee of everlasting life. We pray and ask for all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, hello once again, everyone. If you've already forgotten, hi. I'm Ty. It's really nice to meet you. I want to start by saying thank you to the ruling elders here and Tim for inviting me to preach. I know this is a church that cares about the integrity of the pulpit, and I'm grateful you've entrusted me with the preaching task. Since you're between series this week as a church, I've chosen to reflect on the first recorded sermon in the New Testament that Jesus himself didn't give. So this is a sermon about a sermon, right? Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 
So Pentecost goes by a different name in the Old Testament. Maybe you've read in Exodus 23 or Numbers 29 about the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. That's when every Israelite would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the beginning of the spring to present the first of their harvest to God. You know, rejoicing in God's faithfulness and providing their daily bread and celebrating God's abundance, knowing the rest of the harvest will come and it will be enough for them through spring and summer. So some pilgrims think, some scholars think the pilgrims would recite parts of Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11 at the harvest feast, which says this, a wandering Aramean was my father, referring to Abraham, and he went down to Egypt, and the Egyptians dealt ill with us and afflicted us. And we cried to God, the God of our ancestors, and God heard our voices. And God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with signs and wonders. And God has brought us into this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the children of Israel would have this two-day party in Jerusalem, retelling the story of their enslavement, liberation, and entrance into the promised land so they would remember that their God wants them to flourish under his rule. So when this predominantly Jewish crowd gathers for Pentecost in Acts 2, they were expecting a harvest feast. And that's what they get, just not in the way that they were expecting, because the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit shifted the meaning of the original spring feast. So the question we'll be exploring together is this, where does Pentecost fruitfulness and feasting come from? Okay, where does it come from? And we'll answer that question by looking at two different things. First of all, the true spiritual harvest that happens at Pentecost. And then second, the resurrection reversals that empower the Jesus movement's fruitfulness. So that's our outline today for you note takers, right? True spiritual harvest and resurrection reversals. So let's start with the first one. Let me say at the beginning that Acts 2 is a hotly contested chapter in Scripture, right? Not only because there are theological debates about the gifts of the Spirit and tongues uh, that arise from this scene, uh, but also because the apostles are accused of starting the Pentecost party early and muttering drunken nonsense. Peter quotes a scary and apocalyptic scene in Joel about darkness, smoke, blood, and the apparent end of the world. And there doesn't seem to be anything about a harvest celebration here. So what's going on in this strange Pentecost gathering? So the key, I think, is in verses 2 to 3. So let me read it again. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So if you're a careful reader of the Old Testament, you know that the combination of these two images, wind or cloud and fire, is used to depict God's glory when it fills some space. So the first time the wind and fire appear together is when the tabernacle, you know, God's mobile tent that leads the Israelites through the wilderness and into the promised land, is set up. So listen carefully to the very end of Exodus 40. 
the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night. So here the cloud and fire are representations of God's glory and presence, right? They were Israel's literal guiding light away from the land of slavery and through the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. So the same set of images are used when Solomon builds a temple. So after he finishes praying for God's new home to be a more permanent sign of God's favor over Israel, 2 Chronicles 7 says this, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. So these two symbols, right, cloud and fire, when they descend and when they settle somewhere, they represent God filling that space and making it sacred. So Acts 2 is depicting the construction of a new sacred space, a new tabernacle and a new temple where God's glory and presence fill not buildings, right, but people living within This is God living within the new covenant family of Jesus, right? It's just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you. That's the true spiritual harvest God receives at Pentecost, us, right? His new temple creation. I think this is so practically relevant and resonant for us because life is discouraging, You know, we get apathetic, disappointed, even angry when we don't see God working in our lives. We think God has forgotten about us or just doesn't care anymore because if he did, we would be different and our lives would be more changed. And then we feel that way like it's real. You know, the demands and disappointments of life can make God's transformative presence taste unsatisfying at times. But this story reminds us that God is so committed to your fruitfulness. He's the one who most desires, is most invested in, and most enjoys the fruit of his labor, which is your transformation. Because he's the gardener who makes space for sacred growth to happen in our lives. Thing is, God is just so, so much more patient about our change than we are, right? He gets that all fruitfulness goes through four seasons right? Fall cultivation, winter hibernation, spring harvest, and summer feasting. By the way, I'm not a farmer. I don't know anything about those things. I'm so talking outside my area of expertise right now. This is just what I read about in scripture, right? So look, I don't know what season of life you're in. You might be in a long fall of eager expectation where there's new colors and you can feel the wind of change, Maybe some of your leaves are are starting to drop because there's a spiritual cold, but there's no fruit yet. And if that's you, like, this is what I want you to hear. God is active during the fall, right? He's digging deep roots in you that will one day bear fruit for himself 
and for others to enjoy. Or maybe you're in a harsh, cold winter, and it feels like spring will never arrive. And if that's you, you have to remember winter is a time of intentional dormancy, right? Because the harvest always arises up out of the decay and ashes that comes with the severity of the season, right? It's the fury and silence of winter's night that makes spring's sudden arrival that much more satisfying. And God wants that spring harvest and summer feasting for you. You are the fruit of his labor. Your faithfulness is his reward. And this is what separates the way of Jesus from every other religion. Right? Other religions have a self-cultivation, a self-growth strategy for divine acceptance. I do this or sacrifice that or offer up my most prized possession to God or the gods. Then they know I'm pious enough and worthy enough to deserve a reward for my devotion. Right? It's a quid pro quo. My piety, my possessions, my prayers for your divine favor. But following Jesus, like, it's not like that at all. Jesus says this in John 15, 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. So what makes you worthy isn't your fruit, right? It's not your paycheck. It's not your job title. It's not your status. It's not your giving. It's not your moral political positions. You are already clean or acceptable because of the word that he speaks, right? Jesus' word of rescue cleans you. You know, it renews you and makes you a hospitable place for God to make into his home. So look, you are God's spiritual harvest. He wants you to bear fruit, and that fruitfulness is created by remaining in him, listening to his voice so his word would prune you into a blossoming, life-giving tree. This isn't self-cultivation or self-growth, right? This is continually planting and replanting yourself in God, resting in the waters of the word so your growth comes from him because he delights in and shares your spiritual harvest with others. That's the true spiritual harvest of Pentecost, being rooted in God's glory so our lives would be filled with his life-giving presence. So that's what empowers the Jesus movement. But what about those resurrection reversals and, and how do they empower the Jesus movement? So, Peter explicitly quotes Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110 in his sermon before the Pentecost crowd. So let me summarize those like really briefly for us. Joel 2 is about the decreation that happens when God pours out his spirit on all people. Okay, Psalm 16 is about God lifting up his chosen Messiah out of death's grip. And Psalm 110 is about God setting a divine king on his own throne. And all of this, Peter says, has been fulfilled through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He says in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has, this, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, that's a reference to Psalm 110, 
and Messiah. That's a reference to Psalm 16. So Peter's standing up trying to convince everyone that Israel's story reaches its climax in Jesus, right? Even though death would normally end every other story, it's not the end of Jesus' story, right? In fact, it's just the beginning. The resurrection life of Jesus marks the beginning of God's recreation of the world to restore it to its original beauty and purpose. So there's this theme Peter is playing on, and it's this theme of resurrection reversals. You see explicitly in verse 22 and 24, and Peter says, you put him to death by nailing him to the, co- to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, which means God is undoing the source of human evil and suffering by raising Jesus from the dead. And then you see it again in the contrast between David and Jesus in verses 29 through 32. So let me just summarize it again really quickly. So on the one hand, King David's prosperous reign came to an end when he died. And his tomb is evidence of that. That's verse 29 through 30. On the other, Jesus was enthroned to an everlasting kingdom at his death. And his empty tomb proves that he is the divine king God sets on his own throne. So look, the resurrection undoes the normal rhythms of ancient dynasties, where one king dies, another takes his place, and there's instability and violence until someone comes out at the top of this free-for-all power grab. Right? But not so with Jesus. Yahweh pledges to make Israel's true king enemyless, right? Or in the poet's words, I will make your enemies a footstool underneath your feet which means there's peace in this kingdom. I think it's important to pause here to reflect on the resurrection reversals that happen in our lives as well, because your story reaches its climax in the Jesus story too. And the purpose of those reversals is also peace or shalom. The highest fulfillment of this is our future resurrection from the dead and everlasting life with God in his kingdom of peace, right? That's the highest fulfillment. So all those precious lives that were taken by disease or disaster or natural death, he'll lift up on the last day and we will be reunited with them. And finally, we will be at home with Jesus. But God also gives us a taste of that future resurrection, resurrection hope and peace now by infusing his own divine life into our death-dealing ways. So I want you to think about the death-dealing ways of relating to others that you experience, right? Both the unfair ways you treat others and the wounds that you carry from them. So all of that, all of the hurt and the pain, all of the regret and anger and shame, all of it bears the mark of death, right? But God takes the ashes from our hearts, those near-death experiences of our lives, the bitter and cruel and unjust suffering we've inflicted on others and have been inflicted on us. He takes the trauma and ache of death into his hands and from those ashes brings life and goodness and beauty like once again, right? That's a resurrection reversal because God's instinct is to take something that's death dealing and make it life giving. So in the quietness of your heart, as we sit together in the presence of the living God. Ask God what actions you should turn from because it deals death to others.
You know, ask him to search you, to examine you, to expose the darker sides of you so you can move away from the darkness and into the light of his beloved son. Ask him for a resurrection reversal in your ugliest and longest standing moral failures. Like whatever it might be, just just get honest with God about them so he can repair the ruins of your heart and make peace from your worst choices. Ask him to do that for you. I also want you to consider someone who's hurt you, who needs a resurrection reversal of their own, and sincerely pray for them. You know, not in a judgy way, not as an enemy, but as a wounded companion, as someone who equally needs the love of God in Christ Jesus to undo the hurt and pain in their life. Ask God for a name for a love for them that exceeds your own natural ability, for a deep and genuine care for them so that you can forgive them from your heart. Because true forgiveness and peacemaking brings us closer to home than almost anything else in this world. At least that's the invitation of Ephesians 4.32, which says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just like God in Christ forgave you. Right, so ask God to make you into that kind of forgiving person. That's what Peter thinks is the right response to his sermon. That's why when someone asks the question, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance, faith, forgiveness, Union and communion with Jesus through baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, those are the things that empower the Jesus movement, right? That's how God creates peace and shalom in this world. He did it for those gathered at the first Pentecost, and he'll do it for us again. So I want to close with a pastoral reflection on good and bad fruit in our lives, because we've talked a lot about God's commitment to our fruitfulness, And I'm sure, like me, you have good and bad fruit, right? But this is what I want you to hear. Don't be ashamed of the rotten fruit and don't boast in your best fruit. What I want us to do is to trace uh, those fruits back to the soil that gave rise to it. So ask yourself, like, what am I planted in? You know, what, what roots me? What fertile ground am I already in? that results in my thought and will's action and behavior. So let's start by reflecting on where your good fruit comes from. And I think we should start here because for a lot of us Angelinos, we enjoy the fruit of success. Wealth, titles, degrees, homeownership, networks, partnerships, beautiful spouses, privileged kids, And like, don't get me wrong, none of those things are inherently bad. Like, none of them. I have a family and letters behind my name. Yes, it happens to be letters that nobody else in the modern world cares about, but it's still letters, right? MDiv could be mistaken for MD if you have really poor eyesight. But the question, though, is where does your good fruit come from? Did it come from a place of trust and faithfully pursuing your calling and carrying your cross? Or did it come from blind ambition 
envy, greed, status-seeking, or power-hungry craving. So if your life is successful, do you assume it's a sign of God's blessing? Or, even worse, that people who don't have what you do aren't as favored by God? So you see what I'm trying to get at, right? Good fruit has the potential of being dangerous because you can see it as your right and your reward for your performance rather than the gift that it is from your heavenly father. So if you see the fruit of success in your life, I think you should contemplatively pray through Galatians 5, 22 through 23 again and ask that God would give you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, in an affluent, materialistic culture, we need to constantly humble ourselves for the good fruit God is creating in our lives so we don't arrogantly dismiss God's generosity to us or assume God especially favors wealthy high achievers. Right? And we also need to consider whether or not we're misidentifying the fruit of capitalistic success with the fruit of virtue formation that comes from the Spirit and pray more urgently for the character-forming fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit God desires us to have, right? Not things, but integrity. Because we're not primarily human doings, right? We're human beings, and God wants to transform us into the kind of beings who reflect his character in our world. So I have another, maybe even harder diagnostic question for you. What about the bad fruit? You know, where does that come from? The harsh words you have with your wife or kids. The slander saved especially for that one coworker. The devotion to sports or recreation or entertainment at the expense of your spiritual health. The unending desire to consume and one-click purchase just one more Amazon item. The endless doom scrolling through pictures or videos on social media or the news. The apathy towards God because you're just too busy. And please, please hear me when I say this. I ain't judging you, okay? I am not judging you. Uh, those are descriptions about my own life. That's where I found them. When I'm really looking at the man in the mirror, I am guilty of all of those things. All of them. Especially spiritual apathy when the NBA finals were on. Like, just saying. But God will harvest more fruit in us by uprooting the rotten soil. And so the more you crowd out those, those lower disordered loves with higher rightly ordered loves, your fruitfulness will only multiply because you're deeply rooted in the soil that matters most. So whatever fruit you have, right, rotten or delicious, and I'm sure it's mixed, just like mine, just remember, like, hear and receive into your heart the words of Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches, and my Father is the gardener. He will prune you so that you can become even more fruitful. So let him till the soil of your heart, let him tend to the garden of your life, He's skilled and gentle at trimming. He knows where to cut and when. Your fruitfulness is his reward. So amen. Would, would God gather an abundant harvest from us at the way?
Would you pray with me so I can close this out? Father, you are a skilled gardener who not only cultivates fruitfulness in our lives, but delights in and shares the feasts of that harvest with others. You're a God of labor, labor and abundance. Help our hearts to find their rest in you so you can do, do more in our lives through the resurrection life of Jesus than we would ever dare to imagine. Take all of our fruit, prune the bad, blossom the good, so that our lives would reflect your goodness and peace and life-giving love in our world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.